So like Matthew said, uh, this weekend, uh, specifically tomorrow, but this whole weekend, we are uh, celebrating National Orphan Sunday. And this is where the church around the world uh, and, and then the United States uh, take a moment and, and remind themselves and raise awareness uh, for the cause and, and the demand and the call that we have from God to defend and take care of the orphan. We have a, a, a call from God and to stand up and, and speak up for those who don't have voices, who don't, who can't defend their own rights, and, and definitely that is, is the orphan. God desires uh, for us to take care of them. For anyone who wants a relationship with God, it's important that we, we follow this call. Our relationship with God hinges on this, this love for others, especially those ones who can't defend themselves. The ones who don't experience love on a, on a regular basis. So to, tonight, today, we're going to dig into uh, a scripture that kind of has a pretty harsh reminder of that fact. A pretty shocking uh, reminder from God that a relationship with him hinges, is, is the focal point of that relationship. It hinges on our active love for others. So we're going to dig into the scripture. We're going to be into Isaiah 1, chapter 1, uh, verses 12 through 20. And so while you're turning there, I, I want to set the scene for you. See, Isaiah lived and preached and taught in a pretty interesting time in the Bible, uh, especially in Israel's history. His ministry started about 750 years before Christ, um, uh, thereabout. And at this point, Israel had split into two kingdoms. There's the northern kingdom, who was called Israel, and then the southern king kingdom, who was called Judah. And, and right before his ministry, or right after, some, somewhere be right at the beginning of his ministry, the northern kingdom had been uh, destroyed, had been taken away. Assyria, who was like the Nazi Germany of that day, a, a great power, an evil power, had come in and, and taken over, decimated Israel, the northern kingdom. And they were knocking on the door of Judah as well. So there's this imminent threat of war for Judah, Israel's audience, or Isaiah's audience. But there's also this interesting uh, thing about Jerusalem, which is the capital of Judah, it's kind of the political, economic, spiritual hub of Judah. And in this city of Jerusalem, they're kind of doing well for themselves. <laughs> there's a, a pretty big economic boom. Uh, there's a lot of wealth coming in and out of that city. And in that city, because of this wealth, there's a lot of uh, divide happening among the people. See, the rich and the rulers are getting rich and more rich, and the poor are getting more poor. That divide is, is separating them more and more and more uh, in this time period. And, and it's not even that the, the rich are forgetting about the poor, but they're kind of using them as step stools to make themselves more famous, more known, more powerful. And this is where God starts to speak through Isaiah and, and addresses this issue. So we're going to start in, in verse 12. And read a few passages, verses. 
When you come to appear before me, who is required of you this trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations. I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. Your new moons and appointed, face, appointed feast, my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen, because your hands are full of blood. Let's stop here for a moment. God says something pretty shocking here, uh, something that kind of knocks you back on, on your heels a little bit. The picture that, that is painted is God is rejecting the Israelites, the people of Judah, their worship. He's rejecting their sacrifices. He's rejecting their offerings. He looks at, at what's going on, and, and he doesn't want it. He doesn't accept it. And for us, that's, that's pretty shocking because we think, oh, God's not ever going to say, your worship, that's not, that's not good enough. Yeah, of course I'll take your worship. But that's exactly what he's doing. And it's even more shocking for the people of, of that time because those sacrifices, those offerings, those festivals and feasts, that's all they, they know of a relationship with God. That is their relationship with God. That's how they, they think that they can uh, atone for their sins, how, how they can know who God is. And God says, no, I don't want that anymore. It, it's, I, it's bad. It, it's troublesome for me. I, it, my soul hates it. Whoa. Step back. That's, that's pretty hard to hear. God says, I don't want that. I see down into your hearts, and I see that you are being self-righteous, self-gratifying. These people were doing what they were commanded to do, even, and, and what they had been doing forever. And to most people on the outside, they, they were probably doing it pretty well better than what they were supposed to do. They had a lot of people coming to the courts. They sang really loud. They lifted their hands when they prayed. They look awesome when they're doing it. But their hearts, this worship, it's all, it's all fake. It's all empty. God saw that this worship that they were, they were giving to him was, wasn't about him. They had self-righteous minds and hearts. He saw their desire to look good in front of other people. He saw their desire to fit in with the culture around them. What he saw was their empty and corrupted hearts, their lack of love and lack of unity. Now, I know that this sounds pretty extreme for, for us, and, and we think, uh, this doesn't really relate to us. This is, this is talking to a pretty specific instance. Uh, and, and for me, I'm like, yeah, tell them, tell them, get them, tell them what that's all about, you know? Show them who's boss God, you know? They don't, you don't need that, you don't need them. But the truth of the matter is, is that this is going on in our day to do, day to day as well. Like I think, first thing, if I'm going to relate this to our, our culture today, my first instinct is to relate it to the megachurches. 
You know, the churches that have like hundreds of thousands of people coming each week. They have the fog machine, they have the light show, the laser show, the really cool electric guitar solos all day. Then the preacher gets up there and he says, God wants you to have what you want. That's it. If you follow God, you're going to be happy forever and ever and ever and ever. And he, you know, he looks like real good. He's got that real nice suit on. You know, if you pray to God, you're going to get that Bentley. You're going to get that private jet. I'm going to fly and preach the gospel. It's awesome. They're going to preach that health and wealth. That's what I think of when I think of this. I think, oh yeah, God's talking to that church. He's talking to those people. But the truth of the matter is that this is very relatable to me as well. It's relatable to me when I sit in the pews of the church and, and I come and I kind of just go through the motions of what church is. You know, I, I sit, I stand, I sing, not very loudly because I'm not very good. I sit, I stand, I'll give my offering, I'll sit and, and listen and depending on who's preaching, I'll, I'll take a little nap and maybe on other days when other people are preaching, I'll just flat out snore. But then I'll stand up and I'll sing some more and then I'll sit, and then I'll go home, and then rinse and repeat, rinse and repeat. That's, that's not, that's what this is talking about as well. But maybe that's not you. Maybe you come to church, and you do engage. You do allow the Spirit to move in your life, and I'm not saying that I do that every week, but I have been, I have done it before. I have shut off my mind and my heart to what the Spirit could do through me or in me that day, I haven't engaged with scripture, but maybe you do, and I hope you do, and I hope that you're not doing what I do have done right now, that you are listening and that you are engaged and you are open to what the Spirit's going to say to you today. But maybe on a regular basis, uh, this, that, that part doesn't relate to you. So let's take this scripture a, a, a step deeper. Let's look at what God is really getting at in his disgust. This disgust from God, this command to stop their worship and all their sacrifices is God's way of saying, you are abusing this relationship that we have. You're abusing this, this love that I have given to you because all you do, all you do is take. All you do is come to me and say, what can I get from you? There is no give. And not that we can give anything to add to God, but the love is, is a definitely a two-way street. A relationship is a, a giving of both sides. And God has definitely given. And these people, it, they were not about, their worship and their lives did not reflect that. They were self-righteous in their minds. They, they, they wanted to get they wanted to get more famous. They wanted to get more power. And God says, stop. They weren't about upholding their end of the relationship because they trusted their own efforts. They made themselves their own God. And, and Yahweh, the Lord, your God, the one who had brought them out of Egypt, who had sustained them in the desert, who had given them the promised land, that God, that God who saved them and given them salvation because of their faith. He says, I don't want to be a part of this anymore because you don't trust me. You don't have any faith in me. It's not about you and I. It's all about you. 
that brings, that brings it a little bit more home, I think, to each one of us. Because each one of us has a relationship with God, whether uh, we like to acknowledge it or not. Our relationship with God is either us giving ourselves to him and, and receiving the grace that he has for us, there's the give, give, or it's us giving him the glory, or it's us taking and giving that glory and that worship and that praise and that trust to something else or someone else. Usually, it's ourselves. So in between the worship services, in between Saturday night and Saturday night or Sunday morning and Sunday morning, what's your relationship with God look like? Do you even think about it? Do you go through the day thinking, am I giving God the glory in this action? Am I giving God the glory in washing the dishes or making coffee for my wife or uh, going to work? For me, I put up, put up duck work all day. And it's tough for me to actually think about my relationship with God when I'm putting up duck work. But I'm supposed to. That's supposed to be an act of worship. Do you just phone in those days? Do you say, I'll, I'll think about it when I go to church on Sunday? Or maybe you're on the other side of that. Maybe uh, you overcompensate your, your Christian acts, your good acts. You do things so that people notice that you're doing them. So you look good, like, or that, you're just, that your relationship with God looks good. You do things that are that in everybody else's mind around you, they look at you and say, she's got it together. She is a really good Christian this week. She posted this many things on Facebook. She was volunteering this many times. But really, she wasn't doing it for the right reason. She was doing it to get that reaction. Maybe that's you. I know I've done that too. It feels good. But whatever side of that you're on, whether you're the lackadaisical church attendee who comes and goes and doesn't engage while you're here, or you're the, the good, the, the do-good overcompensator, God desires that relationship, his relationship with you, to start and end with him. A relationship in which we are actively engaging him and pursuing him and serving him, which is to love others on a daily, hourly, minutely basis. In the book of Matthew, Jesus speaks uh, directly to the type of people that Isaiah is speaking to. Uh, in Jesus' day, they're, they're called Pharisees. And, and in chapter 23, Jesus has some pretty harsh words for the Pharisees as well. Because they're doing the same thing. They're looking for the attention and the power to, to come to them. And they're stepping on the weak and the poor and the defenseless. I'm not going to read that whole chapter, but I do want to highlight, I have some uh, passages highlighted that I want to read to you so that you can hear what Jesus has to say about uh, people who were self-righteous, who were fake-worshipping, and who were empty-hearted in his day. So he says this, about the Pharisees. They don't practice what they preach. They tie up heavy, cumbersome loads and put, on, put them on other people's shoulders. But they are not willing to lift a finger 
to move them themselves. He also says that everything they do is for people to see. He says, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees. You are hypocrites. You shut the door of the kingdom of, pe- of heaven in people's faces. You clean the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You are like whitewashed tombs. I, I, this one hits home. This one is, I think, a, a great reflection of the people he was talking to, but I also think it's a great reflection of many of us in the church today. You are like whitewashed tombs, which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of the bones of the dead and everything unclean. In the same way, on the outside, you appear to people as righteous, but on the inside, you are full of hypocrisy and wickedness. So we have God rejecting the Israelites' worship and and Jesus speaking to the Pharisees about their worship and saying it's no good as well because they are self-righteous, selfish, only out for themselves. And God knows this because he can see into any person's heart, know their desires and their mind and their thoughts, but there's a more tangible and practical way that God knows this, and it's through their actions. There's a more uh, a practical reason that God says, I'm not listening to you because you have blood on your hands. So let's continue in Isaiah chapter 1. Uh, we're going to read verses 16 and 17 now. God says this, Wash yourselves and make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless and plead the widow's cause. See, they have failed to love others. They have failed to genuinely and care for and serve and love the people in their society that need it the most. And this lack of love has caused the decay and the broken relationship that Judah, the people of Judah, have with God. This second part of of Isaiah's passage, it it describes uh, why God is rejecting the first part, is rejecting their worship. And it's because they have forgotten a command that they have been given for a very long time. This isn't a new concept of loving someone else and treating the people that are need, needy in your society with love and to serve them. It's something God has been saying for a really long time. And in fact, there are numerous times in Deuteronomy when, when Moses is giving the law to, to the people that God says this. But the very first time, the very first time is a command It comes in a passage that says we should walk in God's ways. And then that first way is to love the fatherless, the orphan, and the sojourner. I'm going to read that passage because I think there's power in knowing that that God doesn't just give us command and says go do it on your own, but he has a passion for this. It is something that has been on his heart for a long time, and it's in his character to do something about it. So this is what Deuteronomy says chapter 10, verses 12 and 13, and then 18 says, 
And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you? But to fear the Lord your God and to walk in all of his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to keep the commandments and statutes of the Lord, which I am commanding you today for your good. And then you skip down to verse 18. In the first way, the, the first act that God does that we're supposed to walk in is this. It says, he executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. I find it interesting that the first thing that is mentioned after being told to be like God, to imitate God, is this. To love the orphan, to love the fatherless, to love the widow, and to love the sojourner. It could have been anything right there. It could have been the Ten Commandments, which are pretty good. It could have said, go to church every Sunday. That's pretty good. It could have been be holy. It could have been pray more. It could have been give offering, give more tithe. But no, it was none of that. It was love and serve others, specifically those who don't receive love on a regular basis. So fast forward a few hundred years, and we're into Isaiah's time now, and they have obviously forgotten this command. And not just forgotten it, but are abusing it. Abusing the people that they are called to love. And now, you fast forward a few thousand years uh, to where we are today. And I think that the culture and the church is still in the same boat. I think that, that we are in the same situation that the people that Isaiah was speaking to, that God was speaking through Isaiah to in his time, were in that same kind of culture of consumeristic, self-gratifying, self-glorifying way of life. And as time has progressed in my own life, and, and I like to look at uh, what my generation is doing, I, I kind of like to sit back and really, I think it's part, partly because I'm a hipster and I don't like to do what my generation is doing, so I'm like, yeah, I'm going to be on my own. See you later, generation. But my generation has very much um, made it more, and this, is, this idea has been around for a really long time, but I think my generation has brought it uh, to the culture in a more prominent way. And that is that self, that yourself is the most important thing. And that the good of self is the most important thing. This this doesn't leave room for uh, genuinely caring and serving others. And if it did, that would only mean that, that these people, this, this way of thinking, uh, the only reason you would ever serve anybody was if there was something in it for you. Or if it was easy for you. If there was no risk for you involved. And I think that, honestly, I think the mainline church has kind of followed right into that as well. The church now says that faith is all about your individualistic view of God and your individualistic relationship with him. That he's there for you to ask for what you need and he'll give it to you or it's kind of however you want to shape it. There is no accountability. There is no uh, sense of urgency to serve other people. And I think that 
that culture and church are kind of colliding on that front and saying, well, this is kind of nice. It's pretty comfortable coming to church because I get to, to do what I want. I get to uh, come here and be told and be fed in a way that says, God's here to please me and it's going to be nice. I, I think about it this way. Thanksgiving is coming up and I love Thanksgiving. Uh, for sinful reasons. Um, I love a lot of food, <laughs> and it's great food. Um, and I love spending time with my family. That's not so much sinful, but the, the amount of food I eat might be sometimes. But after, after dinner, I think the church, like, I, for me, I try to help in the kitchen, but my mom doesn't really let, let me in the kitchen very often. Uh, so my next option is the couch where I promptly take a nap. And I think the church is in that nap. I think they are, they have binged on the self-gratifying, selfish wants of, of people, the comforts, the happiness of people, rather than glorifying God and serving him and pursuing his desires and his will. And because of that, they have become lazy and have fallen asleep. But God earnestly, earnestly wants us to wake up and to start a, a relationship, a true relationship with him, to love and serve others. To love and serve the people who otherwise wouldn't have love in their lives. And in the days of Isaiah, that's the orphan, the widow, and the sojourner. And in the days of now, that's also the orphan, the widow, and the sojourner. These are the people who, without help from others, wouldn't experience love and would be, wouldn't experience life to the fullest and in very real ways wouldn't be healthy or, or safe. See, we are called to love the orphans. And this isn't a call for every one of us to, to say, yep, I'm going to adopt. I'm going to be a foster parent. That's, that's not what I'm trying to say. But there are, in the United States right now, there are close to 400,000 uh, children in the foster care system. And of that 400,000, 100,000 are eligible for adoption today. And in, in the world... And in the world, there are 153 million orphans. 153 million children who are not in need of just physical protection, but also emotional, spiritual, mental love and care. So I do urge you to seriously pray and consider adoption or being a foster parent. But if that's not where God is leading you, that doesn't get you off the hook for taking care of the orphan. There are numerous organizations and, and, and people out there who are doing that, so financially you can give to those organizations. Or you could even sponsor a child. My wife and I have been sponsoring a child for two years now. And we started when we were in college. And I'm not saying this so it makes me look good, but I'm saying it because it's going to show you how easy it is to do. So if two uh, ramen-eating, hot-dog-eating, Pop-Tart-eating college students 
can save enough money each month to sponsor a child. Our, our, our child's name is Hirwa, H-I-R-W-A, and he's from Rwanda. If we can save enough money each month to, to sponsor a child, I think it's pretty viable for a lot of you to, to adjust some financial things and, and make it happen in your lives too. And there are great organizations out there. We, we sponsor through Compassion International, uh, so I encourage you to check them out, but there are a lot of them out there doing great things. So maybe though, maybe you can't afford that even. Uh, so you can't adopt, you don't, you're not being led to adopt, you're not being led uh, to give financially. But that still doesn't get you off the hook. There are plenty of opportunities for you to love and care for the orphan uh, on a daily basis with your time, with your mind, with your ability just to love and be a friend and teach. You can volunteer, it, you can volunteer um, in the children's ministry here, in the youth ministry here, um, with the least of these uh, ministries. You can get involved with what's going on there. You can uh, just get involved at a school with Awana, with VBS, you can take ownership of being a mentor to a child who uh, may not necessarily be an orphan, but maybe come from a broken home or, or a less fortunate home situation. And you can provide for them the love and, and the spiritual foundation that they wouldn't have otherwise. And through all of this, this is like the last resort, but also the first priority of all of this. Like, if you can't do any of that for some reason, there's always prayer. To pray for the, pray intentionally for the orphans of the world in this area, in this nation. To pray for the people who are trying to adopt, the people who are foster parents, for the organizations working with the orphans. And pray intentionally, I encourage you to pray that God would put you in a position to uh, affect and um, mentor or encourage or just be around um, and, and inspire an orphan in some way. Like pray that God would put orphans in your life for you to care for. Because I guarantee you at some point, if you pray diligently and mean it, God is going to do that in some way because this is at his heart, at his character. The same concepts apply for the widows and the sojourners. There is a, there is a dire need uh, for the people of the church to use their gifts to relate and to serve and to love the widow as well. So whether you're a 20-year-old uh, college student who can just bring joy and a smile to a widow's face because of a simple conversation and, and your youth, or maybe uh, you have the gift of hospitality and you are able to open your home and, and or maybe you're just a good cook or you know somebody that's a good cook and you can bring dinner uh, to a widow and spend time with, with them so they don't experience loneliness on, on a regular basis. Or maybe, uh, maybe you can actually relate and you can, and you can provide comfort and you can grieve with them. All of that to say is you can be their friend. 
and you can pray for them and love them in that way. The equivalent to the sojourners um, in Isaiah's time, I think, would uh, be the, the poverty, the, the impoverished and, and the homeless of today. And I, I, I'm going to say something next that may come across like really political, but it's not, I, trust me. In fact, it's the opposite of that. But I think that, I think that if the church was truly loving and serving the sojourner of our time, that there would be no real need for the welfare programs, for food stamps, for the government to step in and, and provide that. If we were doing our job, we were following this command of God, if, we, if our relationship with God truly hinged on loving others in that way, they would become obsolete. It's as easy, uh, Jesus says in the New Testament, it's as easy as giving a cup of water to someone. But I think we, we can easily take it to the next step of, of spending time in providing a meal or shelter or clothing or just an intentional conversation that may meet um, emotional and spiritual uh, needs. And all of that also covered by prayer. See, this is it's not really an option. I'm just going to say that. It's not really an option. Uh, if I was sitting in your seat, I would probably say, well, that sounds really well for the preacher up there and the elders of the church and the deacons and anybody who's been a Christian for about 40 years because they're super spiritually mature, but that's not the case. This has been a command, like I said, for a really long time throughout Scripture for all of us. In Deuteronomy, in Jeremiah, in Isaiah, in Matthew, and in James, these are things that God says over and over and over again, that if we desire a relationship with him, it hinges on us actively loving others. I'm going to say that again. Our relationship with God hinges on our active love for others. The good news, the good news is God wants to be in a relationship with us. Amen. God wants to be in a relationship with us. And in, in our in our case now, after Jesus, we, have been, we don't have to worry about our sacrifice being rejected because he has provided that sacrifice for us. And that sacrifice was perfect. It fulfilled all the requirements of the law. And that sacrifice, that sacrifice demonstrated what it meant to love God and love others. That sacrifice was obviously was Jesus Christ. And he, he showed us what it meant to be in a relationship with God. And he gave all of himself, even to the point of death, that we may know God more fully and that we can truly engage with God in a relationship. He died so that we can be forgiven of our sins, and then he also lived so that we can see how God loves the people that are forgotten or abused. In the last part of our passage, uh, God promises that through obedience, through faith in him, we can, we can continue that relationship in him, with him. So in verses 18 uh, through 20, God says this. 
Come now, come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you shall, be, you shall eat of the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be eaten by the sword, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. So God finishes uh, by saying, all right, all right, come, let's, let's sit down, let's, let's chat this out. There's fireworks going off because this is a really important part, I know. <laughs> it's good. It's perfectly planned because I'm coming to the conclusion. It's like the, the punchline, fireworks. Good one, God. I like it. So God says, all right, let's, let's figure this out together. I know that you are selfish. I know that you don't care about others. I know that you have sinned. I know that you come to church and go through the motions. I know that you don't care for the orphan. I know that you have blood on your hands because you have abused this relationship. But, but I want this relationship to work. And I'll uphold my part of that promise, of that covenant, as long as you promise to trust me and put your faith in me and to serve me, which is to love others once again. And for us now living after Christ who has died and raised a life and he sits at the right hand of God interceding for us, he is the author and perfecter of that faith, of that relationship. This concept of caring for the fatherless is so important to God that because of what Jesus has done, he now adopts us. <laughs> That's pretty cool. <laughs> we were once naked, alone, afraid, without love, and God says, I'm going to feed you, clothe you, give you love, but not only just give you love, but I'm going to make you like one of my own. I'm going to call you a son, and I'm going to call you a daughter forever and ever. And now God says, go do the same for others. Go let them know that this is an option for them as well, both spiritually through me and physically through you by meeting their needs and loving them in a very, very real way. See, our relationship with God hinges on an active love for others. So whether it's adoption or prayer or mentoring or sponsorship or an intentional conversation, God knows your hearts and motives. He knows if you're serving uh, yourself, if you're an empty, fancy tomb. But he also knows if you're truly seeking after his heart. If you desire re restoration for those who are broken. See, he doesn't want a superficial worship. He wants commitment to deeply love him above all else and to serve others with the same compassion and grace that he loves us with. Our relationship with God hinges on our active love for others. Amen.